And now take your Bibles and turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, which today we will almost finish, but not quite. Romans chapter 16, the final chapter in our text, will be verses 17 through 20. Romans 16, verses 17 through 20. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him now to to bless the ministry of his word to us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of scripture, and as we consider it together, we pray that in our hearts the Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted, and we pray that you would use this, which you've appointed as a means of grace to us, to be just that, and that we'd be built up in our faith, that you'd do supernatural things in us through these ordinary means. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been reflecting a fairly good bit recently on last words, especially because uh, the series of sermons that I was doing and began back in 2020 through the Minor Prophets has, uh, in a sense, come to an end. I've preached from Hosea all the way to Malachi, and uh, we're uh, kind of holding off, tapping the brakes a little bit before I go into the next book that I'm going to preach through, which will be Ecclesiastes. But um, I'm going back through some of those minor prophets and preaching messages uh, from some of them, and specifically evangelistically oriented messages. Um, And so that's an advertisement in a sense, I guess. If you've got unsaved friends, uh, invite them to our evening service because I will make sure, God willing and with his help, the help of his spirit, I'll make sure that they hear the gospel. But um, when we got to Malachi, I always viewed that closing chapter, even those closing verses of Malachi, as a really solemn statement, because it's the last book in the Old Testament, and chronologically, Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. And after he wraps up his written prophecy, there was no more prophecy for 400 years. So it's as if Malachi's prophecy is God's uh, signing off for a time, in a sense. I mean, he's always with his people, we know that. And, and his, he always has a witness among uh, man, we know that. But in the sense of new prophecy, new revelation, fresh revelation from God, it stopped, it shut off in about 450 B.C. And the curtain didn't part again. The lights didn't come on again with new revelation until John the Baptist showed up on the scene. So I've been reflecting on that in terms of closing words. A little bit like 
you know, we have a lot of military in this congregation. It's a little bit like when, um, when a man who, who serves in the, the Marine Corps or the Army or one of the other branches uh, is going on deployment. And he's saying goodbye to his kids. He's not going to see them for a while. He might not be able to contact them very freely for a while. And so what are the kinds of things that a dad in a situation like that would want to say to his kids? What things would he want to convey? What final words would he want to impress upon them? And I think that's something like, it's, I certainly get that sense with the closing of Malachi, but I get that sense also with these verses that we're looking at from Romans. And that brings up why I chose the Old Testament reading that I did as well, because there are so many parallels, I think. I think Paul had Genesis 3 in mind as he wrote some of these words. Because what he's dealing with here in these verses from Romans, hearken back to the garden. Because Satan came in to disrupt the peace and the purity of the garden, and he successfully did so. And he was a smooth talker, wasn't he? And with his smooth talk, he convinced the the woman and the man that God was holding out on them, that they could have more if they'd listen to him rather than to God. And then, of course, there's the reference uh, in God's curse upon the serpent that there would be an offspring that would rise from the woman And that one was going to crush the serpent's head. And we know that ultimately that speaks of the Lord Jesus, our conquering hero who came to destroy Satan and his kingdom and his work. But then in this passage in Romans, it says, God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So you see the parallels. see the connections between these four verses at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, his closing words, his signing off words in a sense. And you see the parallels to Genesis 3. Because what remains really in chapter 16 of Romans now, after what we're looking at this morning, all this really left is some greetings and then a doxology. And the book is over. The, The letter is concluded. So this is Paul's last word, we might say. It's his last word in terms of instruction. The last word of instruction in this monumental letter to the Romans. And it teaches us that Christians must be vigilant to preserve and to protect the church. Now, ultimately, that, of course, is is Christ's job. He's the one who does it. But he gives us a role in that. As his people, as his sheep, as his servants, as citizens in his kingdom that is to come, We have a duty to preserve and to protect the church, and we have to be vigilant to do it. So the three points I want us to see this morning are first, the preserving of peace and purity. Of course, I mean in the church. Secondly, we're going to look at deceivers and their devices. And then finally, consider the righteous reminders that the apostle gives to the Romans, and that through him, the Holy Spirit is giving to you and to me. So first of all, preserving peace and purity. He starts out with a caution. The words in the ESV are, watch out. You know, it makes you think of the colloquial, colloquial expressions we use, like, uh, you know, heads up, right? Or, or uh, 
Look alive. That's sort of what Paul is saying. I appeal to you. I urge you, some versions say. It's the same expression he uses in um, chapter 12, verse 1. He's very much in earnest, in other words, and he warns us to watch out, and he's got two specific threats in mind. Well, in, in military terms, military planning terms, we could call critical vulnerabilities. And these two threats, interestingly, come in the form of people. He warns us to watch out for people who cause divisions and for people who create obstacles. So let's take those one at a time. First of all, he warns us to watch out, to be on guard against those who cause divisions. Because you know, just from a cursory reading of the Scripture, that unity and peace are very high priorities in the heart and mind of Christ for his church. They're central concerns of Christ. Read the Gospels. Listen to Christ's teachings in the Gospels, and you see how central this was in his mind and heart for his people, for his flock. Unity, peace. And it carries over into the apostles and their teachings, which we should expect, shouldn't we? And so Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, he commands the church in Ephesus to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. High priority. And if that's a priority, and it is, for Christ, if it's a priority in the apostolic teachings, then it stands to reason that the enemy will try to disrupt those things. The enemy will try to disrupt the unity of the church. The enemy will try to throw a, a wrench into the peace of the church. There are those who will cause divisions, Paul is saying. They're out there. And so he says, watch out. But then secondly, there are those who create obstacles. Another way of translating that word might be hindrances. New American Standard uses that word. Beware of those who cause hindrances or offenses, it says in the New King James. And that brings up the, the Greek word, which you have probably heard of. Uh, it's the, the word scandalon. Beware of those who cause scandalon. Uh, scandal is the word, English word that comes to us right out of that word. And usually when this word occurs, uh, the word that in our text is translated um, obstacles, usually when it's translated in most versions of the English New Testament, it uses the word stumbling blocks. And there are people out there who will seek to create those within the church. And Paul's saying, watch out for them. And one of the reasons there's such a threat is because both the divisions, the potential for divisions, and these obstacles are contrary to Christian teaching. The way you read the English text, uh, that, that um, phrase, uh, they're contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, applies to the obstacles, but not to, the, to divisions. But actually, it applies to both. And so if we're seeking to walk according to the word of God, if we're seeking to walk according to the apostolic teaching, which is the teaching of Christ, 
then some will come and, and seek to divide us or create obstacles. And when they do so, they're doing it contrary to Christ's teaching, contrary to Christian doctrine. I use that word doctrine. I don't know if it sounds kind of stilted and, and utterly, you know, uh, uh, kind of formal and, and stiff to you, but the, the word doctrine just means teaching. And even though we don't necessarily use it that way on an everyday basis, even, I can draw a, a military analogy. There's a whole command within the U.S. Army called Training and Doctrine Command. And it has to do with, well, what do we teach soldiers? How do we train them? So the word doctrine is still uh, current, it's useful. So don't be put off by it as if it's something, you know, just for, for uh, egg-headed theologians. Uh, no, it's for you. Um, and these divisions, these obstacles are contrary to that doctrine. Now, there are sometimes divisions that are caused by Christian doctrine. And we have to be aware of that and keep that in mind. Sometimes sound teaching causes division or it causes offense. And that makes sense too, doesn't it? Because um, if we encounter people who can't stand shoulder to shoulder with us on the basis of certain teachings of God's word, we have to separate from them, don't we? That's why there are churches even down this road that we would not unite with in, fellowship, in Christian fellowship or in worship because they don't believe what we believe. We, we seek uh, to the best of our ability to guide our, our lives and to, to guide all our teaching based on the content of this book, uh, on the content of scriptures. And if, and if there are people who say, well, we're Christians, but they don't buy into the fundamental doctrines of our faith, we, we have to separate them. There can't be unity then. And it's the same with um, stumbling blocks in the sense that the gospel itself is an offense to some. Paul, in one of his other letters, said that the, the gospel is almost like a fragrance. And the fragrance of the gospel, to those who are being saved, is sweet. It's a fragrance uh, of, of life that leads to life. But for those who reject Christ, that same fragrance that you believers love, and it's sweet to you, stinks in the nostrils of the enemies of God. Same fragrance, but two different reactions. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, speaking of Christ and of his gospel, this good news that we are charged to proclaim. He says, you know, to some people, it's a stone of stumbling. To some people, it's a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, it says in 1 Peter. So you know, I had a friend years ago. He was new to the faith, and he was really excited about sharing his faith, and he was witnessing to people continually. And a lot of times, people didn't want to hear it. And my friend was confused. He said, why would they reject the gospel? There's nothing offensive about it. Ah, but there is. And Scripture tells us so. It's offensive because it brings man down. It's offensive because it beats down man's pride and says you need a righteousness outside of yourself. Your heart is bad and you need a new one. That's what the Gospel says. And sometimes people don't want to hear that and it's offensive that you would think that they're not a good person 
You understand? So the gospel, the true teaching of God's word, can bring division. That's why there is, that's why our denomination exists. That's why other certain conservative denominations exist, because the denominations that certain people had been in had become so corrupt, so uh, apostate, that people couldn't stay in them anymore. So they pulled out and they started a new denomination. For instance, the PCA. So the gospel and the true teaching of God's word can create division, and sometimes it does, and it can be a stumbling block. But the threat that Paul has in mind in our text this morning is division and obstacles that are contrary to sound teaching. That's what he's warning against. And how are we to respond to these threats? How are we to respond to the divisive people and the people who are causing obstacles? Well, the answer is we are to avoid them, the text says. Turn away from them. Break connections with people who are in our midst trying to cause division. Not that I sense that at present. But they'll be there. Scripture makes that plain. So if people come into our midst and they seek to create division, we're supposed to avoid them. If they're causing or creating stumbling blocks, we're to break connections with them. It doesn't mean be rude to them. It doesn't mean be unkind. That's never appropriate. But what it means is we should avoid any unnecessary interaction. We should withdraw and avoid them and watch out for them. So preserving the peace and the purity of the church is of utmost concern. These are priorities as seen in Christ's teaching. And it carries over, again, I say, into the apostles' doctrine. And I'll say this again because it's so important. The teaching of the apostles is the teaching of Christ. So when you go into the letters of Paul, or when you're reading the letters of John, or the letters of Peter, that is the teaching of Christ. It's not something extra-Christian. It's the teaching of Christ. It's what he taught them, and he promised them before he left the earth that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, was going to come, and he was going to remind them and bring to their minds everything he had taught to them. And that's what we have in the letters of Paul. That's what we have in the letter to the Hebrews, and on and on and on. This, the whole thing, is the teaching of Christ. And teaching is one of the primary missions of the church. What did Christ say in his great commission? Go, make disciples, baptize them. And what do we do with those disciples? Leave them to flounder on their own? No. Teach them to, to observe everything I've commanded you, he says. So teaching is central to our mission as the church of Jesus Christ. And when it speaks of purity of the church, when I speak of the purity of the church, it means both moral and doctrinal purity. In other words, purity in the way we live, holy lifestyle, but also purity in terms of the doctrine that we teach. And that's why when you come to join this church anyway, or any church of our denomination, you, you answer five questions. And the, the fifth question goes like this. Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Purity and peace. There you have it. So if you're a member of this church, you promised to help preserve that. 
And when it uses the term study, when you, you promise to study its purity and peace, that's a, a somewhat archaic use of the word study, but it just means to make an effort to achieve it. It's like when, when Paul says to Timothy in Second uh, Timothy, and I'm going to use the, uh, the King James Version, uh, he says, study to show yourself approved. He's, he's not... Uh, exclusively or specifically talking about study in the sense of, yeah, get, get the books out, Tim, Timothy, and really study hard so that you can be a worker who needeth not to be ashamed. No, he's, he's talking make an effort. It means work hard to show yourself approved. And we are to work hard to preserve the purity and the peace of the church. We must be vigilant to preserve and protect the church. But then that brings us to the fact that there are deceivers out there and they have devices, and we are not ignorant of them. So, deceivers and their devices. Verse 18 says, such persons, in other words, those people who cause divisions, those people who are creating the obstacles or the stumbling blocks, number one, Paul says, they do not serve our Lord Christ. They may call themselves Christians. It's possible uh, that they're even in the faith, but they're, they're on the wrong path, and they're doing the wrong thing. They do not serve the Lord Christ. They may be in the visible church. In other words, they show up on Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Wednesday evening. They may be active in the church. They may say, Lord, Lord. But unless they repent, what they're going to hear from the Lord is, depart from me, you cursed. Because Jesus cherishes the unity of his people and the purity of the congregation. And anyone who's going to disrupt that is not serving the Lord Christ. They don't serve our Lord Christ. The text says they serve their own appetites. That's how it's put in the ESV. Literally, from the Greek, it says that they serve their own belly. Not just in the sense of food, but in the sense of what they want. Their desires. They serve their own selfish motives. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, speaking of the same kinds of people, the people who disrupt the peace and the purity of the church, he says their end, this is Philippians 3.19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So there again you have this use of the belly to kind of uh, summarize the personal ambitions and desires. And it can refer to any and all kinds of appetites that govern people and make them do what they do. Because ultimately, what it comes down to is those are their idols. Those are their gods. Whatever they love more than the peace and the purity and the unity of the church. And Paul gives us examples of some of their commonly used devices. You know, when you're going to face somebody uh, in some kind of confrontation, it's good to know what kind of weapons they have and how they use them. Paul shows us the uh, devices of deceivers. He gives us two, and they both have to do with words. And it's interesting that the Greek words that are translated for us here both have that Greek suffix logia on the end, meaning um, words. So he speaks first of smooth talk. 
Deceivers come with their smooth talk. In the Greek, is that's, that's krestologia. It means smooth or deceptive words. Friendly, deceptively friendly words. That the first part of that compound word, krestos, occurs elsewhere in the New Testament. And the place where it occurs is in Matthew 11, verse 30, when Jesus is telling people, come unto me, I'll give you rest. And he says, my yoke is easy. That's the Greek word krestos. And when he says deceivers use, one of their devices is they use krestologia. They use easy words, smooth words. Words that get us off our guard. Or words that tempt us to take the easy way. We talked about that in Sunday school as well. Christ had been promised by his father that he would receive the nations as as his inheritance. And then along comes Satan with smooth words. And he says, hey, I know you're going to have the nations for your inheritance, but listen to me. You don't have to go to the cross. Just bow down and worship me, and I'll give you the nations. No pain. Don't take the hard road when you can take the easy road. That's the lie of Satan. That's the smooth words. That's, those are the crestologia. And that's the problem with deceivers, you see, because so often they sound really good. That's what makes their words easy. They have a pleasant way of talking. They can convey their deceptive words in a really compelling and smooth way. They seem to make sense, and that's the danger. And then, in addition to flattery, you've got, uh, excuse me, smooth talk, you've got flattery, which is the Greek word eulogia. That's where we get the English word eulogy. You know, so when someone, uh, a funeral's being conducted from someone, and the eulogy is when someone says good words about the deceased. But in this case, it's not uh, sincere good words that are in mind, as Paul warns against the devices of deceivers. It's good words, but more in the form of excessive praise. Words that are good in a deceptive way. And that's why it's translated flattery. The text tells us that by such things, crestologia, smooth talk, eulogia, flattery, by those things, deceivers deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, I want you to be careful with that word, too, because uh, naive has a pretty negative connotation for us. We think of somebody who's naive as a person who's just sort of stupid or, you know, uninitiated, empty-headed. But it's not, the, the word here is not pejorative. I guess the worst it could probably mean is uh, just unwary. But what the word really means is kind of unsuspecting. And if a person's unwary, if they're unsuspecting, if they're not watching out, they can easily be deceived by deceivers or stumble over stumbling blocks. But Paul gives an antidote to those things. And there are two antidotes given in the text I think one is very clearly stated, the other maybe is implied. But the stated antidote, again, is avoid them. When you recognize a person who's a deceiver, who's causing divisions, who's setting up stumbling blocks, avoid the person, verse 17. And then the implied remedy, the implied antidote is know the scriptures. Be students of the word so that you know the truth, so that you're better able to recognize 
falsehood, when it confronts you, you'll be less susceptible. You'll be more wary. The deceivers are out there, so watch out. We have to be vigilant to preserve and protect the church. But then finally, we have these righteous reminders. So look at verse 19 with me again, and hear what Paul says about the church in Rome. He says, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. Now when Paul says that to the church in Rome, he's not flattering them. He's not engaging in excessive praise or flattering speech. He's commending the Roman Christians because they do have a good reputation. And the reputation they had was that they were an obedient church. They were seeking to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience to his commands. And that made Paul glad. He was happy that they were obedient. He's delighted that they had this strong testimony that was known all over the region, all over the church. But John Stott, theologian and commentator, makes this observation about obedience, and I think it's apt. He says there are two kinds of obedience. There's blind obedience, and then there's discerning obedience. And Christians need to try to cultivate that discerning obedience kind of obedience. And so we're to aim for this. That's what verse 19 says. That's what the second half of the verse means. Paul says, I want you, he says, you're obedient. I know it. Praise God for that. I commend you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. You and I as God's holy ones living in a fallen world We need this admonition. We need to be discerning. We need to be wise as to what is good, but innocent as to what is evil. When Jesus took his disciples, the twelve, and he paired them up and he sent them out to preach and to teach, to heal, and to prepare the way for him, as he was giving them instructions, he said to them in Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He was aware of it. They're going into places of spiritual danger. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, he tells them, be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. That's kind of what Paul's getting at here, too. They're expressed in his words to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 14 Verse 20, he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your understanding be mature. Uh, you may be familiar with or maybe have heard of an English translation of the scriptures by a scholar by the name of J.B. Phillips. And the way he translated the second part of Romans 16, 19 was, I want to see you experts in good, experts in good, but not even beginners in evil. I think it's a good statement of the, of the spirit of the passage. And it takes us back to what Satan said in the garden. Comes tempting our first parents, and he says, you know, if you eat that fruit... You'll be like God, because then you'll know not just good, but you'll know evil too, and you need that. You need to know both. 
and his lies that he still tells today, they're all the same. All the same. They're just sugar-coated variations of the original lie. Should we be surprised at all? He's the father of lies. Verse 20 assures us that that liar is going to go down. Verse 20, once again, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So in Genesis 3.15, it says the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman would crush serpent's head. But Christ's people share in Christ's victory. We share, and we're even participants to an extent in ways we don't always understand, but we share in Christ's victory over the evil one. So these righteous reminders that Paul gives for the Roman Christians are needful and they're applicable to us. Every bit is needful, every bit is applicable to us today as they were to the Christians in Rome. So take them to heart and live accordingly. In other words, be, we could say, jealous, or maybe a better way, a less problematic way to put it would be zealous. Have zeal for the peace and the purity of the church, the body of Christ. If you're a member of this church, you promised that you would do that. You would study its purity and its peace. Jesus Christ was, and he still is, he remains passionate about the unity and peace of his church and also for moral and doctrinal purity of his church. These are his priorities and they ought to be ours as well. We must be vigilant to preserve and protect the church. And end of the verse, end of verse 20, responding in a sense to the themes that we found just in these verses, but also to some extent everything that's come before in Romans. Paul concludes How? With praise to God. That's what doxology is. Words of praise. There's another logia word. Praise words. A brief benediction here, but immeasurable in blessedness. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And and that's what we need, isn't it? In fact, if we didn't have anything else, wouldn't that be enough? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul learned that lesson in Christ's school when he prayed about a thorn in his flesh. Three times he prayed that God would take it away and God didn't. And what he said to Paul, what Paul learned was, my grace is sufficient for you. No matter what you're facing, My grace is sufficient. So how are we going to preserve and protect the church? What can we do? How are we going to do it? We can, but only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would indeed multiply that grace to us, the grace of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we have it in fuller measure than ever before, and may it abound to us day by day, as we continue to walk with you and serve you in this present age. We pray, Father, for the purity and the peace of your church and that you, our shield and defender, would protect us and that we would be cooperating participants in that and looking out for your church and that it would all be to the glory of your Son, our Savior, 
our hope. We pray in his name.